Hi, Tucker. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, usually with guests, I like to talk a bit about their approaches to recording different instruments. Maybe if we start with the drums, if you got any, obviously it varies project to project, but do you have any kind of go-to techniques, methods, favorite mics? Um, you know, yeah, like probably most people, I have some go-tos, at, yet at the same time, I'm always trying to get out of any habits and, and not try to always do things the same way. But um, I do try to always make sure that I'm getting a picture in a mono overhead that I'd be happy with if, if all the other mics failed or if, if I only had one track. That's usually a Coles 4038. Um, you know, it gets it can get the whole picture if a drummer plays in a balanced way. Uh, it's a little bit dark. It doesn't have the the sheen on cymbals that sometimes you're after. But uh, all things considered, it it's it's a very very useful sound if you've got it in the right place and you've got a great drummer. So I start there, and then you know that I still just experiment with almost everything else. I mean, you know, if the snare drum sounds great and the player's playing great. I'm pretty happy with any mic on it. I default to a SM57, but often I will put a Sony C37 on there. It's just a little bit more of a... It's just not quite that little... The, the mid-range honk. It's, it's a little more open-sounding. Um, although I love, I love it when I'm able to get a drum sound where I don't have to lean too heavy on the close snare mic, too. That, that comes back to... The, to that coals up above. Uh, usually I'll have a ribbon, which is the coals, and then a large diaphragm condenser right next to the coals, usually head to head, um, both as mono overheads that I can blend together or just pick one if one makes more sense for the song or the record. Um, I use the Josephson E22S, I think is the model, uh, on Tom's. And that's just, you know, once I tried those, I thought I'm going to stop screwing around with Tom mics. It's all, it's all right there. Um, let's see. On bass drum, forever I was doing a D12 on the inside, or sometimes on the outside too, but uh, I was watching one of those Chad Blake mix with the Masters things, and he was, he was breaking down a mix that he did for Arctic Monkeys, and, and um the bass drum sounded ridiculously good and obviously it was just so well recorded and played but uh, it was a buyer 380 so i bought one of those and now now that's my favorite inside mic and i usually have like a fet i have this lawson fet 47 i put on the outside and um certainly prefer the outside sound you know but sometimes if a mix gets dense and you need need that attack to cut through more um, then I'll, I'm glad to have an inside mic on the kick. Uh, tend to not use a hi-hat mic unless it's called for. I start without it. Um, and sometimes I'll have like a bottom snare mic that floats between the hi-hat and the bottom snare. Um, I love doing, you know, getting drums with as few mics as possible. I think they just sound so great when you have have few mics doing the job 
because of, I guess, for phase reasons. And also it's just the simplicity of pulling up, you know, three or four or five mics and having the whole picture there is just something so great for workflow and, um, and, and just getting a, a great mix quickly because there are fewer variables, but it means getting it right at the front end, which is, you know, I think something we all strive for yeah. sometimes more successfully than others. Have you messed around with um, distorting bass drum on other close mics like Chad Blake's known for? Yeah, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that. Um, I have, I usually run a 441 right kind of above the bass drum pointing at the snare drum that will go through like the sure level lock, uh, which is a, definitely a Chad Blake-ism yeah. from way back in the day. And I just always have that going and Sometimes I lean on it heavily. Often it's muted. Sometimes I blend just a little bit in. You know, it depends so much on on all the variables. But I think it's great to have that option, not just for the distortion, but also there's just a mid-range presence that can just make the drums cut. If all of a sudden you know you've got a lot of mid-rangey guitars and stuff, and the drums are starting to get sound too soft. Do you use the tom mics for stereo width, or are you keeping those mono as well? I'll do a little stereo, yeah, um, just to kind of open up the middle a little bit for vocals and bass and stuff, the things that are usually up the center. But um, I don't go really wide. More often than not, it just sounds kind of goofy if if the overheads are mono and all of a sudden the, the rectum is like on the far left. But yeah. You know, I also love, I love kind of bold decisions, and um, and I'm not, I'm not stuck on things always sounding natural and and believable if if they're exciting. Uh, so, um, but yeah, since we have to speak kind of generally, I guess yeah, that's my my go-to would be like maybe ten o'clock and three o'clock yeah. or two o'clock for the toms, yeah. Are those mono overheads um, over the snare, or are they more kind of over the kick or beta? Or um, usually, yeah, usually over the snare. I mean, since the drum kit isn't perfectly symmetrical, you know, as far as the where the snare lands in the kit, uh, I feel like what I I find is it's some kind of sweet spot towards the if you're the drummer's perspective and it's a right-handed drummer, just a little bit toward the right side of the snare, catching catching some of the high tom. The coals will grab the high tom for days. It has no problem catching that. Uh, and, yeah, just kind of find that sweet spot where you're getting enough kick drum and hopefully a little bit of floor tom, though the floor tom usually needs more close mic than the than the rack tom in that, using that method. And... I usually will add a little 10k on on the coals with the pull tech or something if if I have that handy and um, through an 1176. I've just been that was my first real compressor and was my my first great drum sound I ever got was a single coals through an 1176 uh, and so to this day maybe that's almost just superstition at this point but. I love I love the splat that it gives to to all the drums. 
you have a go-to height for the mono overhead? It's just by feel. Usually it's it's just high enough to be comfortably out of the drummer's way so they don't feel like they have to think about it. So I guess that's pretty low. Um, you know, the the roomier part of the sound, if I if I really if that's really important, um, would come from a room mic or two. And you know, Coles is pretty good at capturing some of the feeling of a room anyway, just by you know being bidirectional. So yeah, I've never measured it, but it's yeah, just a few feet over the snare, I guess. Right. I do a lot of um, kind of minimal drum techniques as well with the coals a lot, and I sometimes have a problem with. It's in the mix stage, the artist will say, okay, the drum sounds good, but could we have this cymbal far mm. to the right, or can we have this cymbal far to the left? And I kind of had to say, well, not really. Have you no. experienced that? <laughs> and do you have any kind of ways around it? Um, it's been a while. It's been a long time since I've felt like I painted myself into a corner that I wish I hadn't. Um, I think that you know, drummers, certainly experienced drummers, they know what's going on pretty quickly when they're tracking and they see mono overheads or whatever, and then they come in for a playback. And if they're really passionate about some cymbal being heard better or being panned specifically, then I feel like that's the time to bring it up. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, it's okay to say, no, we can't do that. Or... Is it something that we we could overdub? You know, if it's so crucial, let's let's try it right. as an overdub. Um, but I do sometimes have to put a spot mic up for a cymbal if it's if it's way off to one side, and the the mono overheads might not catch it. I'm not sure how much engineering you do for projects that you are not producing or mixing, but do you ever do more kind of general drum miking if you're worried about um, painting the producer or the uh, mixer into a corner I, I pretty much just engineer things that i'm producing um every once in a while i just love an artist so much and there's some situation where you know i'm i agree to to just engineer things but uh i, I think just communicating well you know if there's a producer there again they have experience and they know they'll have an idea of what they're, you know, what they're signing up for and what commitments you're making. I just try to communicate well about that and, um, you know, try to make the playback sound as good as possible and check in with people at that stage when I'm starting to feel pretty happy about the sounds and just let everyone know that it's, that's kind of the moment to speak up. If, if there's some sonic choice I'm making that, that they're not necessarily feeling. Right. So I guess moving on to acoustic guitar, it's actually really interested to talk to you about acoustic guitar because I was really, I really like a lot of the sounds you get, especially like um, the Decemberist records. They're kind of very wide and close, but still have a lot of depth. Do you have any favorite mics techniques? Um, I'm so bad in that. I really always do it differently um and the decembers are are kind of a unique case in that colin plays the acoustic guitar so hard <laughs> it's just 
you know, it's not like uh, so many records I do, the people play kind of softer and just kind of get this, find the sweet spot of the guitar. And it's, it's actually, you know, it's that thing where you're playing softer, but it's more full bodied as a result. And you've got this, this great detail on the, on the high end and, and really tight, well-defined low end. Um, but when Colin plays, he's just, just destroying the guitar and it's, it's just the way he plays, you know, we probably, we may or may not over the years have had some conversation where I asked if he could play any quieter, but they're just a band where that is what they are. That's their musical personality. And we learned pretty quickly that tinkering too much with that, um, just takes them outside of their, their sweet spot. So, um, I love I love to do acoustic guitar in stereo if I think there's going to be room for it, you know. If if it's a band with a lot of electric guitars and keyboards and just like bashing drums and stuff, I just it's probably not going to happen. Uh, I mean, it's there's just that width isn't really going to be appreciated in the mix. So I'll I'll go mono, but uh, otherwise I'd like something really like a really bright pristine mic on the body side like um sometimes it'll be a bnk 4011 or i mean it could be anything any usually a small a small condenser and then over closer to the 12th fret um it varies forever i was using like a u87 and the last few years i've been using the aea n22 which is a ribbon but it's it's really open, uh, but it's, it's, it never sounds harsh. So, um, with someone like Colin, I think it was always important to have at least one of the mics really tame, just the insane brashness of the strings, but also, you know, to a degree embracing that, like there's a time and a place for, for brash in your face, acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if you'll be able to remember specific songs, but um, I was thinking of June Hymn, which is one of my favourite acoustic guitar songs, mm. which is, for the most part, it's a very kind of sparse song, which is him and the guitar. Do you remember anything about recording that? Sadly, I don't. Um, not specifically. I mean, I know that we recorded it in a barn outside of Portland. Um, you know what? You know what I had that I was experimenting with then was, and I think I used it as one of the mics on the acoustic guitar, but the KM54, which is a nickel capsule, old uh, tube Neumann. And I, I do remember that was kind of my, my, my flavor for that record. Um, along with, I had a, a Wonder CM7 that I used a lot, kind of, alternated between his voice and guitar when when we weren't tracking vocals live so there's a good chance it was those two things panned mm. wide like with the mics not that far apart but um but panned wide so it gives you a you know the guitar still feels center but it feels wide and there's there's so much space on a song like that that it can be appreciated have you experimented with um mid-sides mic technique very much because when i first heard it i thought that's my what it might be i really haven't i really haven't that's just one of those things it's just it just has never been the time i guess i'm always 
you know, it's the session starting and, and I want to go to, to things that I'm, I'm really confident in. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued. It sounds like something that I would love, although people have often told me that they thought something I did was midside. So, <laughs> um, maybe I don't need to complicate matters. Yeah. I guess it was just to do with the kind of clarity and it's also kind of very wide. And I guess it made me think from my experience of doing it, it had kind of some similarities to my tastes and my experiences with it. Yeah. I really should do it. I should just, should just break down and do it. Just decide that some project is the one yeah. to do it on. And from my experience, the side mic actually makes a lot of difference to the, because also I've used, I normally use a 121, Roy 121 as a side mic. And I tried um, using a Coles once in that place. And I normally wouldn't because it's obviously it's huge and it was not huge, but it's incredibly heavy and yeah, a bit worried about it getting knocked over or whatever. And I actually, the sound has changed a lot by just even those two quite similar mics. It's definitely worth experimenting with. Yeah, I, I will. I mean, I suppose even worst case, you've, you've still got... I mean, even just your just your mid mic alone, assuming it sounds good, is great. Even if you end up not wanting to go for the full mid side in the in the final mix, or do you usually like how how quickly are you are you monitoring the um, the full mid side? Well, if they're if they're listening to the guitar in the headphones, then it just has to be the close the, the mid mic. Because right. um, well, I can't really do it no latency with the processing needed on the side mic to do all the sort of tricks because I don't I yeah. don't do it through a console. I just do it straight through preamps into converters. So as long as, long as the close mic sound is good enough, I normally use a Josephson um, C42, so it's obviously pretty good mic. Oh, so. man. Is that the small condenser yeah. one? Yeah. They make good stuff. Yeah. Normally have to scoop out a bit of the kind of five k harshness, but oh yeah, it yeah, sounds really great sound. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask about working with the Decemberists. Obviously, that's a band that you've worked with over a long period of time. Um, are there any kind of big benefits to working with the same band over a while, kind of learning their tastes, that sort of thing? Um, yeah. So I mean, certainly, I don't know if I could articulate it very well, but you know, one thing is for sure that just with with every record I did for them, I, I just my respect for their craft and who they were as a band just continued to grow, and my understanding of who they were as a band and as artists continued to grow. And um, I think you know, once you're many records in with somebody, it's also really easy to be on the same page as far as wanting the new record to be a step forward to not do something you've done before. And, you know, in, in a case like that, I'm intimately familiar with what they've done before because I did it with them. Um, so they don't have to explain that or they don't have to worry about someone coming in kind of wanting to make their idea of a December's record, which now that December's think is, is, is old and boring to them. You know what I mean? Cause Artists have to grow and be challenged and try new things. So 
that's the first advantage that comes to mind. Aside from just that you have you have such a huge vocabulary with people at that point, you know, you can you're on the same page right away and, and you don't have to wonder what they mean when they use a certain adjective or something. Yeah. I think you mentioned before working from um, a barn for that record. I think there's a tape or sound on sound article or something about it that I've read. Um, was that uh, like a barn that was treated for recording or was it just like a random space that you went to? It was just a total random space. It was, I think they just, but the the song called the songs he was writing, um, there was definitely some kind of Americana feel about it more so I think than what they'd been doing in the past, and uh, he just got it in his head that Colin got it in his head that that doing it remotely, just going away somewhere, you know, because at that point all of us had kids and um, just kind of busy demanding family lives. And um, we were really all just excited about the idea of just going somewhere. And that's the only reason you were there. And that was the only thing you could do there. And you couldn't, there was really nothing to, you know, go walk to or something aside from walk through the woods or through the fields. So um, it came from that. And, and then they, well, we all knew this family, the uh, Pendarvis family, where actually Colin had gotten married. Uh, it's a farm and they just had a little barn. It's a small barn. Um, I mean, small by barn standards. It maybe was, let's just roughly say, 30 by 30. We were just all in the same room. And uh, I had a bunch of these foam baffles made that were like four or five feet high and about a foot thick and about four feet wide. So they were just like these big blocks that you could move around as you needed. And that made it. That made a lot of things possible. I mean, everything was bleeding into everything, but um, it made it so that it was manageable. Yeah. Well, I do a lot of my recording kind of similar, like a hall, one big room for everyone playing at once. Did you have any other particular tips apart from the baffles for working with bleed and that sort of thing? You know, I mean, you, you just have to, you have to think about getting the performance and the arrangement and stuff right like whoever's playing during the live take needs to be playing for keeps because it's you know it's not like this kind of modern pro tools mentality with everyone's separated and they're just playing like yeah i'll probably fix it later or i'll make it better later or you can do this and that do it and copy and paste stuff you know um so it's 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 kind of a relief that way it just requires a lot of focus but once you once you get something you've really got something special like right away and um you know bleed bleed is hardly ever a bad thing if you're happy with the performances i think the main reason bleed scares people is because they want the ability to change their mind later but it's good for us to to have to just jump in and commit was there any talk of Neil Young when you were doing that project? I know he went and recorded some of Harvest, maybe some other stuff in a barn. Um, I did have, I, I had found like a completely destroyed copy of Harvest in the 99 cent bin at some record store because, I mean, I had my clean copy at home. but And I, I brought it in and just um, set the back cover up 
to look at because it's 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 such a classic picture of them recording in a barn um and yeah i mean i think everybody in that band and myself included are, are fans of of his and of that record and um so i'm sure it was mentioned but uh, not not because we were trying to make that record or make it sound like that or anything but uh just kind of played into the the romance of recording in a barn and made maybe just reminded us on days where we were like why are we driving an hour <laughs> each way every day to come out here and making recording as difficult as we can for ourselves when i have this like, great studio with everything already set up um it just helped us remember that that it was fun and that we were once really excited about the idea yeah those kind of remote recording things are funny because there often is a point in the middle of it where you're just like, what the hell, we're making this so much harder on ourselves than it needs to be. But um, but looking back, they're often some of my favorite memories. Yeah. You know, I'm, I made a rec- record in a church with My Morning Jacket, and they were just all in one huge reverberant room. I mean, that was a case where bleed was extreme. Any sound that was made in that room was just going to go on for five seconds and it it was just going to be in everybody's mic um but there's an excitement to that too as i was saying and uh and also like it it does give a sound to the record that's unique i think uh bleed is great about that because it because it puts the space in the record more than uh if, if everything's perfectly isolated and you get a sound where you're not committing too much one way or another and you're gonna you know scroll through 20 different reverbs later to choose the one uh so i do love records that have really distinct personalities and that's a, a guaranteed way to to get it yeah no i my recording business is basically like a portable recording business so i do a lot of recording oh cool a lot of weird places like that and kind of <laughs> That's, that's what I kind of have to tell myself. It's, even when it's like a huge pain in the ass, I have to tell myself. <laughs> it's going to sound a very specific way. It's a good thing. And Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think generally people love that and they get excited about it, right? I mean, you've got to have more time. You can't... I mean, I think because several days just getting everything packed up, loaded out there, set up, tested, you know... And then, of course, if something goes wrong, you can't just have your tech show up in 20 minutes or run to the corner market to get a replacement anything. But, uh, well, I'm sure Mark Howard will have some great stories to to tell about remote recording when you talk to him. Yeah, I read a little bit from his book where he was talking about um, doing that in various places. Definitely have a great Mm -hmm. chat with him about that. Um, you mentioned scrolling through 20 reverbs. Do you have any favorite reverbs to scroll through? <laughs> um, I have my EMT 140 tube stereo plate is basically just hardwired to channels 31 and 32 on my API, and it's normal to send one. Um, so that's just like kind of right away when a project starts and I want to hear reverb on something. Uh, that's That's what goes up first. Uh, I've also been really loving the AKG BX10 
I'm kind of leaning a little harder on that than my plate right now, but I think it's in part because it's just, I've had it for a long time, but it wasn't, it was in my control room at my old studio. And if you monitored very loud at all, it would kind of excite the, the BX10 and it made it not, you know, feedback or something. So now I finally got it in a, in a separate room and I'm loving the sound of that. Um, but also I'm in my brand new studio here and I've built a reverb chamber which has just gotten finished in the last week or two. Uh, so that's, that's really exciting. I actually haven't even reamped things into it yet. Cause we've just, we're still kind of fine tuning, um, like which surfaces we're painting this, this varnish on and, uh, you know, which ones we want to make even more reflective and stuff. But I have had a few folks sing in it for a recording and, um, it's pretty special and, you know, it brings, brings something different out of people singing in a space like that than just in a fairly dead room with the reverb on it. Have you thought about which mics you're going to experiment with in terms of using as a reverb chamber? Well, I know that the AEA R88 is, I mean, I feel like it's a perfect mic for that room. It's so great at capturing the feeling of a space and having like a three-dimensional quality to it. Um, Though I know because it is in the basement and like there's occasionally a little moisture down there, I, I do want to think about what I'm, you know, what what mic I'm just going to leave in there all the time. Um, I've been curious to try. A few people have mentioned, I guess, classically uh, the the old Electro Voice RE15s were pretty commonly used in chambers, and those don't cost a lot, and they're dynamics and probably pretty rugged and i suppose if over the years they they took a hit it's not quite the same as as losing an aea r88 but um i don't know we'll see that those are going to be my first two experiments i could always you know have an r88 that i just put in there for certain occasions i mean i do have one um, but I, I, I certainly want to have something that's just always ready to go, just in the patch bay. As soon as we want to hear the chamber, we just patch it in and, and go. Yeah. But if you have any other suggestions of things to try, <laughs> now's the time. Um, that's the only thing I think of is the um, you know the Octava MKO on twos. They're what Steve Albini uses oh. for room mics mostly now. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're super cheap, and I've got a pair in there great for rooms and some close mics and things for considering they're only like 150 quid 200 dollars each yeah i think that'd be probably a pretty good mic to leave just leave somewhere and they're pretty rugged and pleasant. and those are those are condensers not really yeah there's right? more diaphragm yeah. condensers they got loads of different capsules that you can choose yeah a, oh cool yeah i yeah i've been those have come up a few times for various things that's probably a worthwhile investment yeah they're um definitely wouldn't use them for everything but they're really good for quite specific things that you kind of wouldn't expect from a mic that how that cost that much yeah been using them after hearing about steve albini using them been using them on snare quite a lot which is where he uses them as well and they're just you wouldn't expect it but they're really good for that's yeah. great to know yeah i'm i'm kind of in a in a phase of, of wanting to try new things on the snare again. Yeah. The other day on a record, I used uh, that Audio Technica mic that that has the two the 
two mics in it, one dynamic and one condenser. Um, and that's cool. I love the idea of that. I mean, I kind of, I don't, I kind of loathe the idea of having two tracks for the top of the snare. It just feels like somehow like a cop out or something. <laughs> well, I'm usually tracking basics to tape too, but, um, but it, it's remarkable how different they sound, you know? So it's, it's a reminder, um, that how different every mic sounds and, uh, but I, I love the ability to to kind of blend that according to the the final context of a of a song. Do you have any techniques for hi hat bleed into the snare mic? Because I've been dealing with that quite a lot recently. Well, what I wanted to say was a good drummer. Yeah, <laughs> which doesn't mean that whenever you're struggling with hi hat bleed that it's a bad drummer, but. Um, it does yeah it definitely helps seem to you know what i mean like so so many of my favorite drummers that i've recorded it's just not an issue they're not hitting the hi-hat harder in relation to the other things than it should be and so thus getting a little hi-hat in the snare mic is totally fine as long as it's the you know like a reasonable amount which is probably what you're going to get if they're not hitting it too hard um but I know that's not always possible and that's not always the case. And sometimes you want to use, you know, when I run into it the most is, is if we're using hi-hats that are maybe pretty loud, maybe pretty bright and um, going for like kind of a dead snare, you know, with a, yeah. a, a towel on it. And so it's a lot quieter and it's a lot darker and which means usually you need to turn it up a little more and then suddenly you're just turning the hi-hat up more than the snare. Um, no, I mean, I just try the same things as everyone else, moving the mic or a different mic, maybe a more, you know, hypercardioid thing, um, putting something on the hi-hat to mute it, you know, a little uh, a rag or something, right. um, maybe even going as far as putting something like a, a little piece of towel or rag where the stick hits the hi-hat um because what might sound good in the room in that situation isn't necessarily what the mics are picking up but more often than not no it's it doesn't seem to be a problem um and of course the first thing to do is just ask the drummer if they can not hit the hi-hat as hard or and and maybe check out the stick if they're using just some massive stick with a huge blunt tip um, try a smaller stick, all that stuff. Yeah. So I guess um, moving on to electric guitar, you got any favorite mics, techniques? Um, it's pretty boring, but I'm, you know, I default to, I think, what a lot of people do, which is a, a combination of a Royer 121 and a Dynamic, which is usually a 421 on an amp, but sometimes a 57. Uh, sometimes it's the, um, the 409. That mic that I just remember reading that Daniel Lenoir used all the time. Um, that sounds really good, just kind of smashed up against the speaker. Usually I start with, with something like that, with that combo, and 
and that gets the job done uh, every once in a while. Oh, and then, you know, if it's not isolated in a small room and have the luxury of a room mic, then usually there's just already a mic somewhere across the room that I'll turn on. You know, maybe it's like a local mic setup for overdubs. I'll turn that on as a room mic. Um, every once in a while, I'll, I'll put a mic on the back of the amp instead of two on the front, one in the front, one in the back, which can give it a nice throaty sound. But uh, yeah, lately it's just been the, the dynamic and the ribbon and the, you know, the ribbon usually doesn't have enough presence to, to do it all by itself. Uh, sometimes it does. It depends on the, I guess how dense the mix is, but so yeah, dynamic for, for the presence and then the, the ribbon for the body. Using, can somebody just make? Can somebody just make one mic that does all that? Yeah. <laughs> Are you using API preamps normally on that? Um, for, with preamps too. I mean, I know this is. I'm. I'm so not a, not like an engineer's engineer because, I just I use different stuff all the time. Um, but my, I mean, I, it's always my stuff that I have. And, um, so it's, it's usually either needs or APIs. Sometimes I just decide to commit to all APIs on drums for a record. And then most of my API priests are used up and have to settle for a, a little old Neve on the electric guitar. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm kind of funny that way, you know, with setting up, I used to really, kind of geek out and, and spend hours and hours making my input lists. And um, for better or worse, you know, I now I just I just go. I just start setting up and I just plug into the kind of first pre that I see. I mean, there are certainly exceptions. Like the Coles I really love in the, the Hardy M1 mic pre. Uh, there's just something about that kind of, the amount of gain it has and it's clean gain and it, I feel like it just kind of brings out a little bit more from the coals. Uh, and uh, same with the millennia pre's they're clean and maybe even sterile, but with a mic like the coals that has so much color and personality, I feel like it actually just brings out more of that personality. Um, I have a couple of the old RCA, OP6s, which, you know, old, really old uh, tube pre's that have a very distinct sound, and you can push them and they break up in this amazing way. Uh, so, yeah, when I know that I, I really want to commit to a, a ton of character like that, those guys are great. The Ampex 351 mic pre's are also great. Uh, those older ones definitely are going to have more hiss. But there is a just a sound about them that uh, I don't know what it is. It's a, their lack of top end. If if it, if it's not you know if it's not a record where you just know right away that you're missing that kind of pristine modern top end. It's so much so much personality and just right away usually everybody kind of looks at each other and, and smiles when they hear like a vocal going through those things. Um, but that's a real commitment. I don't 
default to that because probably more than anything because of the amount of hiss and these days um yeah just people are less comfortable with lots of hiss i'm definitely not not turned off by hiss but uh, there is a point at which it can start to build up and um and detract from you know some of the kind of space the width and height and depth that you've been working so hard to get yeah I know you mentioned the 421 a bit earlier. Um, I personally haven't had much luck with that mic. What are some of your favorite uses for it? Um, it was the first kind of quote-unquote real mic I ever bought because I think somebody, some engineer that I talked to who, whose recordings I thought sounded great said he used them on on toms and and that it could be used on a bass drum and it could be used on an amp. And, you know, I just kind of needed to get one mic that I could use in a lot of places. Um, then the first time, like when I was pretty young and pretty new at all this stuff, I got to record Bill Frizzell, the guitar player, yeah. who was a, a favorite of mine. And, you know, now, whatever, 25 years later, become a really good friend and we've made tons of records together. But I put the 421 on his amp First of all, I just couldn't believe that he was going to come over to my basement and record. I was just losing my mind, and I was just just thought, I just have to not completely screw this up. Um, and you know, that's just what I had. I put that on his amp, and then I my jaw dropped when I heard the sound coming through the speakers because I, I, that was the sound, like that was the sound on all those records I'd been loving, and I thought for sure that. You know, the reason his guitar sounded that way was because people had all these magic boxes they were running it through and things I would never know about or be able to afford or ever know how to use. And there it was. It was all there. And he was so psyched about the way it sounded. And so just kind of right away, I um, I guess maybe that bonded me with that mic for life. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know that it's anything really special. I feel like. I could put up a, I could put up one of ten or twenty different mics on a guitar amp on any given day, and and it may or may not give me what I need. But um, the 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 frequency range that you know it's certainly limited, um, but I think it kind of limits it in the right way. It just gives me presence usually where I want it, and it gives me good low end, but not too much. And uh, yeah. It's it's no it's no like magic thing. I wouldn't tell someone like you've got to get a four twenty one instead of something else. But they're great, and I've had luck with them occasionally on vocals too. Right. Have you experimented much with dynamics on acoustic guitar in kind of a sixties type way? Um, I have been lately more. I have this old shitty Silvertone Archtop guitar that was like one hundred and fifty dollars. And it's it doesn't have much sustain. It's just a lot of attack, but but a lot of character. And um, you know, sometimes you're recording a song, and that just that classic big body like Gibson sound is just just too much. It's just too much information, too much too many low and low mids and frequencies. Um, so. I've been using that silver tone a lot on things and 
my favorite mic on it is the SM57, just right there at the sound hole. Because the guitar already is such kind of an exaggerated uh, attack and lack of sustain that, that putting, a, putting a mic by the sound hole and getting you know so much low end from it, it really ends up just being just enough low end. It's not extreme at all. Um, so in that sense, I have experimented and uh, successfully with dynamics on acoustic, but but not as much with with like a standard full body, you know, Martin or something. Have you tried the four four one on acoustics? That's become one of my favorite acoustic mics recently. No, no, I never have. Right, but I love that mic. Yeah, I don't know too. why I haven't. It, I was completely surprised first time I tried it because it was like sounded like a condensed mic basically on acoustic and it was that mic will surprise you yeah, yeah. that's the um, I think that's the mic that's also famous for Stevie Nicks singing into all her vocals does that, does that sound right? I think so I know she did live yeah yeah, I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> I've definitely I've had singers request it before for that reason too. I'm like, even if it doesn't sound right, why don't we just put? I'll put that up, and you can look at it, and then I'll put this other mic next to it, and we'll listen to it. Um, no, but you know, if I've learned anything over the years, it's just that anything goes. And um, as soon as somebody suggests something that sounds ridiculous to me, then like pretty quickly, I'm like. We should try that. That could be cool. Yeah. And it will not sound like the same thing I always do. And I know maybe on the one hand, people come to me for for whatever it is that, that I always do. But um, part of what I always do is try to keep it fresh and stay open to, to new ideas and stuff. So, What are your some of your favorite uses for the 441, then, if not on vocals? Or... Um, it's, it's, on, it's the drum distortion mic is is kind of my go-to um and i mentioned that i put it right above the bass drum pointing at the snare but i've definitely put it you know eight feet away from the kit too and uh i've i've used that before as the only drum mic um if it's kind of blown up and you're going for that thing it's great but uh yeah besides that and sometimes i'll put it up for scratch vocals which I should probably put scratch in quotes because I you know, think anytime the, the singer's singing, it, it could be the, the keeper. But, um, I mean, that mic is so excellent at rejecting bleed. Um, that's, that's a good reason in itself to grab it. Uh, and then sometimes that ends up being kept. But those are, those are really my main uses for that mic. But now that we've talked, I'm going to start trying it on acoustic guitar. Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I often say it's my second favorite mic on everything. So it's not my favorite. For, <laughs> it's not my favorite for anything, but it's normally that sounds pretty great on basically anything. Yeah, I think I've had anything that it's been not usable on at least. That's that says a lot. Yeah. Do, do they still make those? Can you buy them new? You can, but they're pretty expensive compared to getting old ones. Oh really? Yeah. Ah, They're, you can get. I'm a, sure on the forums, everybody's saying the old ones sound better. Probably uh, right. I don't know. <laughs> but you can get a second-hand one for less than half the price of the new one. So I. Wow. 
yeah, I don't know. Anyway, just talking about that kind of trashy drum mic sound. Um, when I first listened to that Decemberish record, is it is it the, what's it called? The King is Dead. Yeah, the King is Dead. Yeah. Um, I wasn't expecting, especially like on kind of Down by the Water and songs like that. I wasn't expecting there to be a, such a kind of big. Not I didn't maybe compressed isn't the right word, but such a kind of big modern drum sound. Not modern even, but. I guess big is the right word, just such a big drum sound on a Decemberish record. Was there a particular conversation about that? No, I think, you know, something I've noticed over the years is that I've just, I'm a drummer kind of first and foremost, and I don't think, I don't, I'm not thinking about, you know, things as a drummer consciously, uh, but when I'm producing and engineering and mixing, but, uh, but I think I do relate to music kind of starting from that perspective and wanting to feel a certain visceral quality that I want to feel as a drummer. You know, when you hit, you hit a drum, you want to get a certain, uh, something back, some kind of, uh, gravitas or something. I don't know what the perfect word is, but, um, so I, yeah, so I go for that, you know, I, I think that plays into to how I mix, even though it, it's not a conscious choice I'm making. But a song like that, oh, you know what, you know what I what I know that I used on there, which was probably adding to that, is the TG1 as a, like a par- on parallel bus compression on the drums, um, which just gives gives them kind of muscle and, and bigness. Um, it, it, but no, it wasn't. It, there wasn't really a conversation. It's just the, the old trying things until it feels like the track is lighting up and and I feel excited and nobody's telling me to stop doing it. <laughs> I think I remember you saying in an interview about the TG One that you put it on and everyone cheers or something similar to that. <laughs> I think I remember that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what's the deal with that box? It's just kind of magic. I mean the. Um, the reason I don't use it all the time, aside from that, I just suppose it's just not always the right thing. But uh, it's tricky with cymbals. If somebody's, if it's a cymbal-heavy drum drum track, it's not always flattering on cymbals. Uh, but but yeah, I mean on room mics or overheads, yeah, it's it, it's something special when you need the drums to kind of explode. Have you ever experimented with that, the Beatles kind of pumping cymbal type sound? Um, I don't think I've ever gotten it the way they do it, but I've certainly, I've certainly embraced the pumping cymbal sound on, you know, with a 1176 all buttons in, or I have this, uh, this tube tech compressor that, that I love for that kind of stuff. It's the LCA 2B. Um, and Often I'm just kind of fishing for just a reasonable setting on it, and I accidentally, like, it's very easy to take the threshold too far and can do this insane just clamping down kind of cymbal pumping sound that you can get to be in time, which is a really cool thing. Uh, but, I mean, I guess historically weren't the Beatles using the Fairchild to do that? I guess it would have been, yeah, or the all tech type ones i think it was the fairchild yeah yeah i've tried it with fairchilds and and never been able to quite get it but there you know there's a lot with the like adjusting the biasing on those and 
I mean, I know they would run one channel into the second channel for it, but um, they've never quite, never quite nailed that exactly. But but I've, you know, I found my own versions, which is, I suppose, the nature of of art anyway. Is you try, try to copy someone and you accidentally find your own sound. <laughs> I guess about mixing a bit more. Um, do you do a lot of processing on the two bus at the end, or do you generally leave it for individual channels or groups? Or? Uh, I usually have an EQ on the on the bus, the mix bus, and and a compressor. And the EQ is usually, at least for the last while, more often than not, it's the retro two eight three. Is that the model that that kind of pull techy EQ? Just for a little sweetening on top, as needed, um, and it can be anywhere from 8K to, to 16K, uh, sometimes none, but also it has that great little low-end filter switch, which, which will like bump, give you a bump at 40, and then kind of notch down around 40 or 90, depending what you have it set to. And... Yeah, that's a cool switch. You know, usually I think that I've already got the low end right in a mix and that I probably can't stand anymore, but I would say more than half the time I put that switch in and I'm real happy about it. <laughs> oh, and then for compression, it's it's usually the Allen Smart C2 or SSL, the gray one. They're pretty similar. Just a little, you know, one or two dB, like three at the most. Yeah. Do you do a lot of processing in sub buses for drums or guitars? Or? Um, I usually have a, a couple compressors set up from buses for parallel. It's usually the 33609, the Neve, and the, the TG1, and, you know, just choose which one's right for the song. Often it's just which one's right for the record. A lot of times if the TG1 is good for one or two songs, it's probably good for the whole record. It just has something to do with the the way that it was tracked and the way the drummer plays and maybe doesn't play the cymbals too hard. Um, too hard not meaning good or bad, just you know, if the cymbals are being bashed. The TG1's usually not my choice, but um, occasionally I'll send other things to the to those compressors just to kind of give them a little extra presence uh, if it feels like they're starting to get you know, overwhelmed in a mix. But usually drums are the only things I use parallel compression for. Otherwise, it's just inserted. Right. And you don't use group compression just straight in the insert for bussing whole groups? No, I don't. I don't. Um, I mean, I, no, the only time I would do that would be like, again, with drums, maybe I would take them out of the, the main mix and just monitor the, the compressed signal if it, if it wasn't extreme enough. <laughs> um, but no, I don't do that. I mean, I probably, I, I could, I, I mean, yeah, maybe I should, I just, you know, I kind of start pushing faders around and 
and usually before I would even think to do that, I start to get something I kind of like. So at that point, I don't want to try to reinvent it too much. Um, and I do, I have my kind of old ways that I've found that I like to do stuff that I've done things forever. And, um, and I'm stuck somewhere between, you know, wanting to lean on, on those things that I've gathered from my experience, but always try new things. So, um, yeah, I don't, it's no hard, fast rule. No reason that I do it that way, except that it's, it's kind of just something that I know. Yeah. Also to be perfectly honest too, you know, sometimes I don't trust the bus switches on every channel to right. be evenly matched. You know, I mean, I, I work hard to keep up with the console, but, um, every once in a while I have some feeling that, you know, sending these three guitars out bus 15 and 16 and I, I swear the left feels a little bit louder and even though I could make make up for it by pushing the right channel up, it just makes me wonder if something in the path is screwed up and I just you know, just reduce the variables. Yeah. Now I um I always tend to ask people in these interviews about the two bus because I use a lot of stuff on the two bus and I'm always I'm just, I guess I'm looking for <laughs> affirmation. <laughs> Oh man, anything goes. I especially with these in the box mixes that I'm, you know, I I don't I've done very little of that. Um but I've been kind of trying to check out more and more how people are doing it and it seems to be, you know, almost everybody just piles stuff on there and I can see it. Like I get it more in that case. Um not that I don't get it just in the analog domain, but but with just with the tools that are available in the box you know, you can get things just so much closer to sounding mastered and, um, you know, all those saturation things you can put across and just sort of dial to the mix and, and know that you could open it up a week later and, and maybe dial it back a little if you want. Like, it gives you a certain kind of freedom. But uh, there's there's just something I love about the splitting it all out on the console method just means making sure everyone's clear in the beginning that, that it's not in the box and they can't call you in three months and ask you to, you know, bump the hi-hat up a DB yeah. in five minutes. Yeah. No, I am... Um, a lot of the stuff I do is basically not going to be mastered, so I'm the one mastering it, as it were. Right. So I, I guess that's probably why I do a lot of stuff anyway. I've always kind of wonder about mastering in terms of this might just be a kind of naive thing in terms of I haven't had much experience of having my stuff mastered or but I always it always feels weird to me the idea that you wouldn't give the artist what you think is finished if that makes sense right yeah I think I think more and more so these days with the tools that are available and you know, more and more mixing happening in the box. Um, I'm still a, a bit of a holdout from just from the era where, you know, you'd mix to half inch tape and you'd leave a certain amount of headroom and, and the mastering engineer was just completely steeped in the, the craft of, you know, getting that level just right for an LP or a, a CD. And, and it was just kind of the last set of ears we're usually in like a fantastic 
fantastic sounding room that they knew really well when for many years I was making records in my basement or something where, you know, we'd get the vibe, but, but we, we weren't going to be winning any awards for, you know, acoustic space of the year. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, I like the comfort of like a trusted fresh set of ears at that stage with tools that are just all about, all about, you know, knowing, knowing which frequency that half dB cut is going to, is going to be perfect for, uh, but, but yeah, I can see the more I'm studying this in the box stuff, the more I feel like I'd probably want to just send it out and ask them to do as little as possible to it. I mean, that's all, that's always the goal, but if nothing else for me, you know, I, I'm leaning on a mastering engineer to, to bring the level up in the most responsible way while maintaining the integrity of, of the audio. And, um, I can leave all the headroom that I want and I've just generally been conservative about compressing a mix for the sake of making it sound as loud as everything else. Like I'll just get the mix to sound what's most enjoyable to me. And then, uh, you know, let the mastering engineer and, and the label and myself and the artist all just kind of hash out, you know, what's right after that in terms of, of limiting and, and, and whatnot. But yeah, I'm totally with you as, as I kind of check out this in the box stuff I've got in my new studio. I have where I'm sitting now is this little kind of studio B workstation in the basement and upstairs is the full on the full deal. But, um, and I've got someone renting out the studio now for a few weeks upstairs. So I'm experimenting with mixing in the box, just seeing if I can get comfortable with it at all, which is why some of these ideas are kind of on my mind and appeal to me more than before, but I have yet to master them. But I even see, you know, see people like Chad Blake and, um, I mean, really, whenever I talk to someone about mixing in the box, it sounds like they've got at least like five or six plugins on the mix bus alone. And of course, tons on, you know, then there's that, that doesn't even count the drum bus that's being fed into the mix bus. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of exciting ways to saturate and kind of widen things and, um, excite them in the box. And it's, it's just a, just a totally different way of, of thinking than the way I've always done it. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of embrace that world too, but don't, don't worry. I'm not selling my console yeah. anytime. <laughs> I think one of the bits of, of advice I got about when well, I got, but I've heard about mixing in the box was Chad Blake saying that basically the main difference for him is that for every one piece of analog gear that he used to get the same kind of effect for him, you have to use three plugins. Yeah, so to get the I color, heard him say that too. Yeah. yeah, right. Instead of instead of putting an LA three on and at minus six dB, puts three on at minus two. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's just sort of like a level that I haven't gotten to that level of, of detail with plugins yet because I I just haven't leaned on them as hard as he has because I'm still you know out of the box a lot, but. Um, yeah, I trust that guy's ears quite a bit. I mean, yeah, basically, I, I mean, it's pretty apparent to me that you can't drive a plug-in 
hard and get something exciting back the way you can with a piece of analog gear. That's that's definitely an adjustment to working in the box. I guess one thing that also baffles me a bit more about the whole kind of self-mastering thing is I guess I got the whole not wanting to give the client something not completely finished sounding thing from Steve Albini who kind of when he gives a master or something he doesn't expect them to have any kind of audible change when he gets it back that makes sense or you know apart from technical changes Uh but then he doesn't do he most of the time doesn't do anything on the master bus which kind of (laughs) confuses me even more (laughs) he's so pure i know (laughs) (laughs) so uh, are you saying that he he tries to to turn to have his pre-mastered mixes be more or less no different sounding than the the mastered. I think I've heard him say he likes mastering engineers who do the least amount possible. And he kind of has a few. I know there's the guy from Shellac. I can't can't remember his name, but Bob Weston, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think he basically said that it doesn't make sense to him to leave any creative or kind of general decisions to the mastering engineer i get that i mean honestly i think he's probably more confident an engineer than i am you know um but i i yeah i mean and i'm i'm kind of an engineer by just by force because i was excited about recordings and um, that you know the the medium of of recording for for just exploring creative ideas and so I just kind of had to learn uh, in order to try things out but I still feel like I'm making it up as I go um, so maybe for that reason I I just love uh, you know one last set of trusted ears at the end but yeah. Um, which isn't to say that if somebody told me like, Hey, we're just going to put this out like this, that, that I would be bummed. Uh, I mean, I, I'd take that as a compliment if they're, if they're psyched, they're psyched. I mean, the only thing I, because I'm not mixing in the box. Um, well that's, I mean, one, one reason I just, I don't make a big effort to give people really loud, uh, rough mixes or, and I don't, I don't print my mix and then limit it to give them a version of it. You know, I'm just like, yeah, it's going to be a few dB quieter than the record you're listening to. Just turn your volume up. You know, people have not had a problem doing that. Um, I'm lucky, you know, maybe, maybe part of that is that people come to me because they like records I've done and they're just like, all right, we're going to just kind of sign on with the way that you do things. It, it works for what we're after. Yeah. But, uh, I suppose if I were, you know, just starting out and needing to get people's attention, yeah, you want them to put it on in their car on the way home and be blown away that it sounds just as loud as their Foo Fighters record or whatever. Um, I don't know why I always pick the Foo Fighters for an example of a loud record. I don't know. <laughs> <Hey>, I... <laughs> um, I think the only instrument we haven't covered is bass. What's bass. your favorite Mike's techniques? I I don't want to 
I think I've probably already used my Chad Blake uh, reference quotient, but um, honestly, I, I started some years ago using the, the Sansamp base driver in parallel with a straight DI, like the red DI from A Designs um, or the Evil Twin, sometimes when it's not broken. Um, but I pretty much just, I don't even use an amp anymore. And I'm so happy uh, that the sans amp gives me what I'm after from the amp, which is just like, you know, punchy, but it's got some hair on it. It's, it's round. It doesn't have that sterile direct feeling. Um, there's a bunch of, yeah, I mean, you can add drive or take drive away and add presence and add bass and whatever, you know, and then I can still take my clean DI if I want and reamp it. And I, every once in a while I will, but um, more often than not, I'm just running DI and it, it does simplify tracking as far as the bass player being able to be anywhere they want in the room and uh, just the consistency of, of what you hear. And it's not, I mean, the bass bleed, if there was any bleed that I was going to be quick to complain about, it might be you know, a really loud bass amp getting into everything because that can really just smear your, your low end picture in a way that you, that's hard to undo. So that's been huge for me. And I always kind of wince when I have to tell a bass player who just walked in and he's looking for the amp that <laughs> there is none. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's really just about what it sounds like. And that's, that's awesome to me. So yeah, I don't have much much to contribute there on mics. <laughs> um, do you have time for one more question? Sorry, I know you've been here a while. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, you're not picking up too much of the people upstairs shouting at each other. It doesn't matter as long as <laughs> as long as you can hear what everyone's saying clearly. I don't really care about oh, that sure. sort of thing much. Okay. Um, I think we haven't touched on piano yet. Do you have any favorite mic techniques mm -hmm. for grand upright? Um, I really, I have these old ships that somebody sold me. They just wrote me out of the blue. They live in town and they, they had, and they were selling them and it was a really good price. I don't even know the model number and I've never seen them before. And when I Google them, there's almost nothing out there on them, but they're small diaphragm side address mics. And they just do it every time for me on piano. Um, I do sometimes like to add a ribbon to just kind of fill in the girth of like the middle of the, of the piano. If it's another one of those things where if there's a lot of space, if it's like a real piano based song that that ribbon mic in the middle will be really useful. Um, if it's kind of a rock and roll track, there just might not be room for that. I know piano players are always, kind of joking they're like well it doesn't really matter what it sounds like because i know in the end it's just going to get compressed and all the low end's going to get rolled off but um i try i mean i think i can be sort of stubborn about this uh but i, I still i still want to hear like almost all the instruments sound really full in a mix it's just it's just something i always go for and then when i learn how other people work i see how 
why their mixes sometimes, why I might prefer their mixes in some cases, just rolling low end off like crazy left and right. Um, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I do, I prefer, I think I like more low end than a lot of people. Um, but I think there are cases where I could let some go had no great loss. But, um, I, but I, I usually start from the place of trying to get, have a really full sound, like even in kind of a, you know, a two electric guitar rock song with a piano, I want the piano to sound full. Like I'm, like it does when I'm standing near it. So that's that's usually where I start and then break out the filters as needed. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for speaking with me. I think that's all my questions. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, I fun. always always learn learn from having to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And I'll, I've got a few new things to go try too.